Welcome to the Mercy Hill Church Podcast. This podcast is a collection of sermons and conversations intended to stir up your affections for Jesus. We hope this content helps you know and tell the story of Jesus better. Well, good morning and Merry Christmas. Thank you. Uh, my name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here at Mercy Hill. It is great to see you this morning here in person. And if you're joining us online, welcome to you as well. Uh, in Advent, uh, each week we've talked about a different theme of the Advent season. Today is love. Uh, and so if you have a Bible, you can turn to John 3.16, which is an incredibly familiar passage. Uh, you can turn your device on to John 3.16. You can flip in your print copy of the Bible to John 3.16. But that's where we're going to spend some time together uh, this morning. Uh, can I make a confession to you today? Uh, I love presents. I, I know we've all seen the Grinch. And we all know that Christmas isn't about presents, all the trappings. But come on, receiving a good gift is really great, right? It's a, lot of, it's a lot of fun. I'd love to know maybe what are some of your favorite gifts you've ever gotten at Christmas time? Anybody got a favorite gift you want to share? Robot vacuum. All right. Win for the Roomba. All right. What else? What else we got? No one. Yeah. Oh, yeah, Abby. Art easel. Yep. Let's do some art. I love that. Love that. Oh, all the way in the back. A dog? Man, uh, depending on who you are, uh, more depending on who the dog is. That, that one could go either way. You know what I mean? It could be the best gift. It could also be the worst gift. Oh, yeah. A sewing machine. All right. That's what I'm talking about. It's like the gift that keeps on giving. Harry, what you got? A Red, Red Rider BB gun back in the day. There we go. There we go. You'll, you'll put your eye out with that, Harry. So uh, I've already received an amazing Christmas gift this year. I wanted to show, show it to you guys. This came from a, a dear friend. I don't know if you guys can read this, but it says the, uh, the Nakatomi Plaza Christmas party, 1988. Let's go. Some of you have no idea what this is about. Uh, this is, that's right. This is, uh, this is my favorite Christmas movie of all time. It absolutely is a Christmas, Christmas movie, right? I know that's a great debate. Uh, but this came to me from a, from a dear friend who's heard me rant about how this is actually a Christmas movie, Die Hard. So it's one of my favorite presents of the year. Why, why do we give presents to each other? Variety of reasons, right? Sometimes it's out of obligation. This person got me a present, so I'm going to have to get them a present. Sometimes it's out of guilt, Sometimes we give presents to get ahead, right? So you take a Christmas present into your professor who's deciding your grade for this semester. Sometimes we give out of just reciprocity. Family, we just swap gifts back and forth. My uh, extended family, we finally just stopped giving each other gifts because all it turned into was just giving each other gift cards worth the same amount. You know what I mean? It's like, uh, why don't you just keep your money? I'll keep my money. We'll just move on. You know what I mean? All we're really doing is giving each other the gift of no longer being able to choose where we spend our money, right? I mean, that's like the gift we were giving to each other. Sometimes we give gifts to uh, avoid embarrassment. You don't want to show up at the office Christmas party empty-handed. Sometimes we give gifts to make people laugh. This past uh, Thursday night, our missional community, which is how we do community groups, small groups here at Mercy Hill, we had a Goodwill Christmas party. 
And some people came trying to, with like some good gifts from Goodwill. That was not my strategy, right? I was just like, what's going to get a laugh at this Christmas party? And you'll be happy to know I did give a VHS of Left Behind with Kirk Cameron on the cover, nice. which um, I was hesitant to even mention because I have never received more complaints than I did a couple of months ago when I made a Kirk Cameron joke about my preaching. It was as if I insulted everyone's mothers here. So then sometimes, hopefully most of the time, we give gifts out of love to show a genuine affection, genuine concern, love for another person. We give gifts because we're thinking of someone, sometimes at a season like Christmas, but sometimes we give gifts because we see something and we go, that person that I love, I know they would love this. And so I want to give this to them. Well, this giving out of love is the way Jesus frames in John 3, 16, his own coming. This is the way he frames Christmas time, why he came into the world. It's familiar, but let's read it together. John chapter three, verse 16. This is Jesus speaking for himself now. So what he says. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now what does it mean that God loves? We often think of love as something that happens to us. We fall in love. Counting Crows sang a song, Accidentally in Love, that came from the movie Shrek, right? Fiona didn't under, intend to love Shrek. She intended to despise Shrek. But what happened? Accidentally, over time, she fell in love with Shrek. But that's not the word here for love in this text. The word is agape in the Greek which often maybe you've heard means unconditional love, which is true. Maybe a better way to phrase it, though, is the kind of love that is the act of the will. This means that God chose to love regardless of the response or the worthiness of his, the object of his love. The picture in the text is action-oriented, that God loved in a way that was self-giving, not taking. That God acts in love, not just feels in love. It wasn't by accident, but God purposefully set out to love, not based on the object, but based on his own character. This idea of loving and giving go together. And agape love is drastically different from the typical earthly, emotion-driven love that we most often talk about. We talk about love. Many of us automatically just think of some sort of romantic comment. But Jen Wilkin in her book, In His Image, which I would highly recommend, here's what it looks like, all right? It's um, uh, kind of marketed towards women, but I promise you the content is for everybody. It's unbelievable. So just get over the flowers if you're a dude on the cover, order the book and read it. But Jen identifies three characteristics of what she calls earthly love. Number one, she says, is earthly love is based on need. I give love in order to get love. I feel like I need to be loved. 
that love is the missing ingredient to my life. And so I give love to other people, hoping that I get what I really want and need from someone else. But it's different from agape love. Agape love is offered, God's love is offered free of need, extended by God to us regardless. God has no needs. God doesn't need us. And it's only because of his self-sufficiency that he can actually love unconditionally. So God doesn't love you because he needs you. God, agape love, loves regardless of what you have to offer back to him. Secondly, she says, earthly love covets reciprocity. I love because I want to be loved. I say I love you because I want to hear it in return. Unreciprocated love is the worst. It destroys us. To say out loud to another human being, I love you, and to get thank you back, or that's nice, is crushing. But agape love is given with no requirement in return. God's love is not conditioned on our response. It is not fretting to see if you're going to say, I love you back. But instead, God gives out of the goodness of himself love. Thirdly, she says, earthly love weighs the worth of its object. We love what is beautiful and powerful and wealthy and strong and compelling. We want to love something that is worth our affections. Listen, I appreciate Little Caesar's hot and ready pizza. But if it weighed, the worthiness of that pizza was weighed against other pizzas, the expression I would use is not, I love Little Caesar's hot and ready pizza. I might say, I love Marietta Pizza Company. But Little Caesar, I'd be like, man, it's nice that it's ready. And it's hot, so that's good. I might, I'm, I might say that I love Tacos Del Chavo. I don't know if I would say the same thing about Taco Bell. The object, the worthiness of the object decides how much we love it. And so we would look at the semifinal game coming up in college football. And I would never say I love Ohio State. Oh man, but I love those Georgia Bulldogs. You know what I mean? But that's not the way agape love works. This sort of love, God's love, fixes itself on the object of its affection regardless of that object's worth. Let's make that personal. This means when Jesus says in John chapter 3 that he loves the world, that God loves you regardless of what you have to offer or your worthiness. God's love for you is not dependent on who you are, on your beauty or your power or your intellect or your wisdom. God's love is given out of the abundance of his beauty, his goodness, his wisdom, and his power unconditioned on us. And so how could we ever put this sort of love 
into words. How could we describe the limitless love of a limitless God? How could we write down a love that needs nothing, expects nothing in return, and is not seeking a love that's worthy of being loved? How could we even describe it? All attempts would be trivial. It would be like a Hallmark card trying to summarize 40 years of marriage. Just fall woefully short. It would be like a six-year-old trying to emulate the poetry of E.E. E. Cumming, I Carry Your Heart, or uh, Elizabeth Barrett Browning, How Do I Love Thee, would fall short. So instead of words, God at Christmas gave the word Jesus, that's the next phrase, his only son or his unique son. So God spoke his love to us, not just in sentimental words that we could understand, but he speaks by this thing we call the incarnation, that God himself came in on purpose, in person, through his son, Jesus. Jesus, fully God, fully man, comes as a baby. That's what we see in the text. God loved the world, so he gave. And when God gives, he's not digging in the closet for some item to re-gift. It's not like what you did for your office Christmas party. This is good enough. God gives his very best, his one and only son. That phrase there, Sometimes it's begotten, or only, one and only. What it means is unique, one of a kind. No one ever like Jesus. Think of how we value things that are one of a kind, even in our economy. So God gave the thing that's worth the most in the entirety of human existence, his son. Motivated, not by reciprocity, not by duty or obligation, not out of guilt, but simply out of his love. So we could summarize it like this. God gave his son Jesus as a gift of his agape love. So we celebrated Christmas. It's why we light a candle representing love. It's because God's motivating factor for sending Jesus to our planet is his love. Not his duty. No sort of sense of, well, it would be the right thing to do. It's not transactional. God is not counting the bottom line. God is not waiting, hoping that you will respond with a return a statement of, and I love you too, but out of agape love. Christmas is an act of God's will. Remember how we defined it? Specifically his will to love, which means, which means really good news. God has set his heart towards his people on purpose. It's not an accident. And God loves without any need for anything from us. 
God loves even when we don't reciprocate his love. God loves not because of your worthiness, not because you or I have something to offer, but because he has something to offer. The greatest gift, his son. Now, there's more to this passage, though. So God gives his son Jesus as a gift out of his agape love. But there's more to that sentence that we have to finish. He gives out of his agape love to meet our greatest need. Verse 16, sometimes the part that we like to skip over in this passage, honestly, we'd prefer to skip the rest of the paragraph. Let me remind you, these are Jesus' words recorded by one of Jesus' disciples who walked with him for three years. Jesus says that God gave this gift because something terrible was on the horizon for the world. He says what? That we should not perish but have eternal life. That without this gift of Jesus, we are in the state of perishing, careening towards sure destruction. Not only that, there's more. Verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to, to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Verse 18, whoever believes in him, Jesus, speaking of himself, is not condemned. Praise God. But whoever does not believe, he says, is condemned Already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So Jesus says our state, apart from this gift from God, is perishing, careening towards destruction, and already condemned. It's a phrase Jesus uses. What does he mean by condemned? That all of us stand before God, being rightly judged for our actions. And when we stand before God, rightly judged for our own actions, that we are found to be guilty, deserving punishment. And so our perishing, our coming destruction is not accidental either. It is not that we hit a patch of ice in the night and are spinning out of control. It is that we are actually guilty. And this perishing that's coming is because of what we have done. Jesus says that not only are we condemned, but we stand already condemned. Meaning that for a long time, we have been under a death sentence, whether we know it or not. Now, we often talk about, we often talk about our guilt before God. But sometimes we don't like to talk about where it ends. It's incredibly hard to talk about John 3, 16, 17 without talking about the end, what that perishing actually means. And what it means is that if we continue in this life separated from God, that we will continue into eternity separated from God in a place called hell. That the Bible teaches us that God is the giver of life. And the more and more you and I separate us from God, the more and more we lose our lives. And that that terminates or ends in eternal separation from God in a place called hell. And so when God gives Jesus, he is actually saving us from actual destruction. 
This is not just feeling. This is not just Jesus came to help us feel better about ourselves or Jesus came to help us have more self-confidence or Jesus came to teach us a better way of living. This is Jesus came to prevent us from dying forever. You're like, that's bad news. But according to Jesus, it gets worse. Merry Christmas, verse 19. He says, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people have loved the darkness rather than the light because he says their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be, what does Jesus say? Exposed. Whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out by God. Jesus says, this is the judgment that the light has come into the world. Now, here's the context we didn't get to talk about. This is a part of a conversation that Jesus is having with a guy named Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a Pharisee, a religious leader, and he's come to talk to Jesus in the middle of the night, in the darkness. Why? Because he doesn't want all of his Pharisee friends to know he's hanging out with Jesus and asking Jesus questions. And so Jesus looks at this guy who came to him in the middle of the night in the darkness so that he would not be exposed and says, hey, here's the reality. The light has come into the world. And that is judgment. What does he mean? Here's what he means. Um, Imagine in the middle of the service today, I'm up here preaching, right? We had a special guest And the special guest was Chris Evans, Captain America, 2022 People Magazine, Sexiest Man Alive. And Chris Evans came right up here next to me, all muscled up, perfect hair. You know what I'm saying? Even if his intention wasn't to put on display how unattractive I am, what would happen? Right? When you stand next to the sexiest man alive, 2022, here's what's funny is what I don't understand about this thing is like everybody for the past 20 years that's won that is still alive. So I don't, anyway. um, (laughs) It would be obvious that I fall woefully short when it comes to physical appearance. If, if, Spencer Strider showed up here this morning, pitcher for the Braves, throws over 100 miles an hour. And we had a competition to see who could throw a baseball harder. And I ran it up there the best I could at 52 miles an hour. And then maybe Josh Black here got involved today. He's a college pitcher. Josh could still zip it up there in the 80s. You know what I mean? You would go, oh, it's a big difference between Josh and Brandon. But 101, even if the intention wasn't to make me look less than, what would happen? It would be obvious to everyone that I cannot throw a baseball that hard. 52 is probably generous. And here's what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus and to us. When the real deal shows up, when I came into the world, with moral perfection, beauty, goodness, wisdom, mercy, truth, and grace upon grace, it should become evident to everybody else around that we don't measure up. Nicodemus might look like a really good dude. 
compared to your average Israelite. But next to Jesus, there's no comparison. And you and I might look like amazing people. When we compare ourselves to our wayward brother or sister, we compare ourselves to our greedy neighbor, we compare ourselves to whoever else, the worst criminal you can see on the news, you're like, man, I look pretty good. She said, judgment happened just when I showed up because it became obvious without him even having to try that we don't measure up to God's goodness. And then he says, we don't like it. That's the problem. We don't like it. He says our inability, the problem isn't our inability to love. But what he says is that our problem is the object of our love. What do we love? We love something deeply, he says. We love darkness. Why? Because we don't want to be exposed. We don't want to stand next to Chris Evans. We don't want to have to throw a baseball side by side with Spencer Strider. We don't want it. We don't want to be exposed. We don't want to be known as frauds, so we run and hide. And the darkness, fleeing from Jesus, protects us because we don't have to admit, he says, that our deeds are evil. That just like Adam and Eve in the garden after they fell, fled from the presence of God that you and I have made our entire lives trying to get away from God. Some of us in outright rebellion. Some of us by hiding in plain sight at church. But all of us, Jesus says, love the darkness. We don't want the truth. We don't want the light. Why? Because we love something. We love our self-respect too much to acknowledge the truth. We love our reputations. We love to hide in the depths of our sin because we don't want shame at being exposed because we love ourselves more than we love being honest, more than we love having to admit our need, more than we love having to be saved by anyone. There's no sort of self-respect in needing to be saved. And this is why C.S. Lewis, in several places in his works, articulates that even if we knew the horror of hell, he says we would still choose it. Because we're not motivated by the fear of the consequences of hell. We're motivated by our deep loves, for our love for our own selves. And so even if we were confronted with the reality of what perishing is and the end of our lives, many of us would love the darkness staying hidden rather than paying the price of being exposed. And you might be thinking, that's totally ridiculous. It's not, because we do it all the time. We love to overeat. Knowing full well that that will lead to our demise, right? And we don't give it up. We stay silent in our relationships, marriage, knowing what needs to be said in order to make things right, but refusing to do it. We continue in our addictions, knowing clearly that it's killing us, knowing 
knowing, right, that our pornography habit is robbing us from intimacy in the rest of our relationships, and we do what? Continue to do it. Why? Because we love the darkness. We don't speak in order to reconcile ourselves with a family member we've been estranged from for years and years and years. We know it's choking the life out of us. But we continue. Because we don't want to be exposed. We don't want to admit that we're wrong. We, Jesus says, love the darkness. Because the darkness hides who we really are. But the best news in this passage might not be John 3.16, but 3.17. Son of Man came not to condemn the world, but to save it. That Jesus didn't come to point a finger at us or sentence us. We do that ourselves. And of, and, but instead, Jesus came to do something about our predicament. That Jesus came not to receive our love, but to give it. Not to show us how guilty we are, even though he does just by his mere presence. His purpose is to save us. That Jesus came out of love when our loves were disordered, all in the wrong place. Jesus still came to rescue us from our sin from ourselves to show us a better way and a better love. So Jesus came at Christmas, fully God, fully man. And Jesus lived his entire life perfectly, putting on display God's goodness, moral perfection. And then Jesus gave his life on the cross, paying in full the penalty of sin that you and I rightly deserve. And Jesus rose from the dead, showing us. Paul says in Colossians, the firstborn of the resurrection. What does he mean? He means Jesus is a prototype of resurrection. And for all of those who follow in him, they're going to also experience resurrection here, eternal life. If if Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is only an example of God's love to show us that God loves us, but not to actually affect our current predicament, then it is useless to us for God to say, see, I love you. I'm going to show you by this pointless sacrifice. But the way we actually know that God loves us is because Jesus' life, death, and resurrection actually affected real change for us. Actually did save. That's how we know God's love. Jesus. So today, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what your background is, church kid, you've been in church your whole life, it's your first time in a long time, it's your first time in forever. I want you to hear this clearly. You are loved. My friend J.D. Greer writes this in his book on the gospel. He says, there is nothing I have done 
that can make you, that's God, love me less, and there's nothing I could do to make you love me more. Isn't that beautiful? That God loves you regardless of what you do tomorrow or what you did 10 years ago. His love is an agape love. So are we all broken? Yes. Are we jacked up? Yes. Do we love the darkness? Yes. Do we not want to be exposed as frauds? Yes. But, but God's love is not conditioned on any of those things. You are loved. For some of us today, the proper response to that truth is to, just like at Christmas time, we receive and open gifts for you today to receive and open God's gift of salvation. Jesus already paid it all. He already did it. It's done. And now a relationship with God, eternal life is offered to you free of charge. There's nothing you could do to earn it or receive it or to get it. All you have to do is believe it. The Bible calls that faith. Spurgeon said faith is like the hand that simply grasps the free gift. And today perhaps is the day where you freely receive this gift of God, salvation. Precisely because God loves you. And then maybe for some of us today who've been following Jesus for a while, we are tempted to doubt that God loves us. We have times where we think, how could God love me? He saved me. I know the light. I know the truth. I know his goodness. And I continually turn away over and over again. How could I still possibly be loved? But I love what John Flavel says. As God did not at first choose you because you were high, he will not now forsake you because you are low. This is why this is so different from any other religious system. Jesus did what was necessary to get you in, get you into the family. You can't undo that by your own actions. So maybe for some of us today, it's just a reminder that you are loved and you can walk with assurance. Not because you're awesome, but because God so loved the world that he gave him his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Thanks for listening to the Mercy Hill Church Podcast. To keep up with the life of Mercy Hill Church, follow us on Facebook and Instagram. We believe the Christian life is best experienced in community. If you're in our area, we'd love for you to join us. If not, we'd love to help you get plugged into a local church near you. Have a great week.